Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. That famous split infinitive from Star Trek, to boldly go becomes a clever pun as the title of Tamar Haspel's book, To Boldly Grow. The author is a James Beard Award-winning columnist for The Washington Post and creative food writer. Later this hour, we'll hear about Haspel's memoir recounting her transformation from Manhattan dweller of the great indoors to living in a coastal community, growing her own produce, raising chickens, foraging, and hunting for her own food. Plus, speaking of the arts, our series of local artists in their own words today features multimedia artist Emily Yamazales. First, have you ever heard of that old kid's rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 whacks, when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Pretty creepy for a children's rhyme, right? Well, there's a chilling history behind it. The unsolved murders of Abby and Andrew Borden in 1892 are the backdrop of a new production at Actors Express, Lizzie the rock and roll musical based on true events asks the question was lizzie borden a cold-blooded killer or a victim of the victorian patriarchy to answer that question city light senior producer kim drobes recently spoke to lizzie director jennifer alice acker and actor Jasmine Renee Ellis, who portrays Lizzie Borden in the Actors Express production. Acker began with a brief overview of the true crime musical. 
Lizzie Borden is a true historical figure in American history, and she has kind of ascended to mythology at this point. She's become American mythology, but she was uh, a woman in Fall River, Massachusetts, who was accused and tried for brutally murdering her father and stepmother and was acquitted. She got off. So it's a fascinating tale. It's full of intrigue and it's it's kind of stayed in the zeitgeist because there is something so horrific, of course, about murder in general, but cold blood murder of parents. It's an, an original American true crime story. So for all our true crime fans, this is <laughs> this one's for you. No doubt. And where does this musical take place within that history? So literally where the play takes place is on the days surrounding the murders. So that's August 1892. But we are presenting this story as a rock opera. So it kind of is in this world, this liminal space between 1892 and 2022 and Victorian America and a rock and roll stage. Wow. So as you mentioned, turning a true crime story into a rock and roll musical is unique, at least. (laughs) What do you think the writers were trying to accomplish by turning this gruesome story into a musical? The historical context is actually really fascinating and heartbreaking. And we hear the nursery rhyme or or the jump rope tale. And I always thought Lizzie Borden was a young woman um, hearing that. She was 32. Her sister was older than that. So if you think of this story now through the lens of these are adult women who are so imprisoned by their circumstances that something has got to give. The kettle boils over. So it's, it's a fascinating lens and landscape through which to explore themes of oppression, patriarchy, and human nature. It's a rock opera. I thought we were going to like have a good time and, you know, <laughs> swing some axes and get some gore. But what is really striking about the play is how much heart and humanity it has. And you watch Lizzie and she becomes a heroine. She becomes a Greek tragic heroine by the end of the show. And you mentioned her unfortunate circumstances. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. So obviously a lot of it is speculation historically, but there is some content warning for those who are sensitive to abuse and sexual trauma. The landscape in which Lizzie Borden is existing at this time is women had no rights to property, finances, et cetera. And their father ends up rewriting the will and putting everything in the stepmother's name. So essentially these two adult daughters who are unmarried are going to become completely destitute is their fear. And there's also some historical belief that Lizzie Borden was sexually assaulted by her father. So there's a great article on an American history blog about, you know, why did Lizzie Borden kill and patricide and and the murder of parents is very often related to childhood sexual trauma. So we have these incredibly heartbreaking circumstances and our heroine Lizzie, she disassociates about as much as she can, but when the will drops and the reality that there's no future for them, her and her sister devise a plan. Mm. So Jasmine, how familiar were you with this story prior to taking on the role of Lizzie Borden? I was not familiar at all, honestly. I had heard the rhyme about the 40 wax, but I did not know that her name was Lizzie Borden. Yeah, so I came into it almost completely blind. 
But after getting the role, I was able to do a little research on my own to get some more insight. So we often talk about actors needing to get into the right headspace for the characters that they portray. What did you have to do to prepare for the complex role of Lizzie? Yeah, so I remember telling Jen at one point, I have never played a role where I could not relate to the character. And so in getting the role of Lizzie, it was, I don't want to use the word easy, but it wasn't as difficult to relate to her, to her frustrations, to her need to just let her voice be heard, getting out of an unfortunate situation. And so mostly my biggest challenge is not not going too far in, honestly. Um, there's a lot of, you know, things in my own personal life that I can drop into. And my challenge is, Jasmine, don't go too far because <laughs> you're still performing. You can't completely check out like you have to stay in and, you know, still tell the story with integrity, of course. One of the hardest things is realizing the freedom once Lizzie has kind of, you know, freed herself of circumstances allowing myself, the actor, to be as free as Lizzie is. Still working those kinks out. I'm still trying to figure out what the barrier is about why Jasmine can't just be free like Lizzie is free. And I think that kind of speaks to my own place in the world right now. So we talk about getting yourself into the role with something as gruesome and, you know, heart-wrenching as this story is what do you do to get yourself back out when you want to go home and just be Jasmine again? I'm very big on music, so I'll blast some of my favorite tunes, which right now happen to be Afrobeats. Nice. So I'll blast music, I'll eat something sweet, and yeah, just kind of let the windows down, let the wind blow in my face, and kind of give some exhales, and, and yeah, go from there. For both of you, after having learned so much about the case, we know that ultimately the jury unanimously found Lizzie Borden not guilty in only about 90 minutes after about two weeks of testimony. What do you guys think the socio-political factors are that went into her acquittal? Gosh, this is discussed so hotly still to this day by historians and, and fans of the, the trial, the true crime it was an immensely complicated sociopolitical time in that area. So Lizzie Borden was actually, her family was extremely wealthy and her father was very miserly. So they ended up living in essentially like the immigrants part of town. And they were these very affluent white people and Anglo-Saxon people. And so Lizzie Borden had a ton of resentment for where her father chose to to keep their family. She wanted to go live on the hill with the other rich Anglo-Saxon people, not around the Irish and mm. Portuguese immigrants. So there's some interesting stuff on the night of the crime where there's very respected doctors like within feet of their house, like their neighbors. And Lizzie makes Bridget, their maid, go into town to get you know the doctor that she wants. So there was a ton of xenophobia going on. And there's this sort of pious white woman going on. And there's a lot of resentment of the police at this time, the policing. So it was this really, really complex and oddly not so dissimilar from 2022 landscape. 
so uh, there's some speculation that, oh, this this jury of, of men couldn't possibly believe a woman could do this crime. There is some targeting of the murder on other people who were in the neighborhood. It was just very, a lot of noise, cacophonous around it, and she got off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's not a ton of clarity in my research. Jasmine, do you have any insight? No, that was my speculation for myself was if they were filthy rich I mean all they have to do is set a number and you know things can fall favorably for Lizzie so I think it was a matter of money yeah wealth and power yeah I hear you so you have referred to Lizzie as the heroine of the story in the classic Greek tragedy way But you also mentioned the xenophobia that's going on. Does watching Lizzie portray genuinely racist characteristics pull audiences away from wanting to show her empathy? You know, that's not in the show. Our show is much more centering on the humanity of this woman and the circumstances in which someone would be driven to this, which I think is great because Blizzy's actual case did become mythology in American history. So the, the true crime facts are one thing and what's in the American zeitgeist is another. And that's where our play heads. So it's much more about the oppression of the Victorian era, systemic oppression, patriarchal values, and how women respond to that. This show was originally slated to be done in 2020. We started pre-production in 2020. And It felt really relevant at that time because the writing on the wall of what would be coming towards women and women's rights was was already sort of emerging. But of course, a global pandemic changed all that. And we went on hiatus on this production and now telling it in in this time in the aftermath of the, the SCOTUS ruling has felt so raw and visceral and important. We always knew the show was going to be entertaining, but there is a deep pain right now. So the symbolic relevance of the patriarchal Victoriana oppressing women's rights and autonomy and agency of their own lives and livelihood. And even in the concept of the production, there is a lot to do with the idea of corseting. Our set is extremely skeletal. So our actors are very exposed. It's very vulnerable. No set pieces to hide behind. They're just out there, raw, open. And this idea of corsets and skeleton and structure caging women in. Lizzie also has pet birds. So there's these bird cages. And we really explore those themes of like, what are the cultural corsets around these women? And how do they, how do they escape them? I love that. What else can you tell us about the stage design and the costuming that's going into the production? Yeah, so we have an incredible design team. Actually, this is one of, I think, the most visually arresting shows I've ever worked on. And Freddie Ashley, the artistic director of Actors Express, said it was one of his favorite shows aesthetically he's seen. So our set designer, Charlie Calvert, and our uh, costume designer, Ali Young, as well as our lighting designer, which I think needs to be mentioned, Miranda DeBusk, and our sound designer, Michaela Frazier, we all took this attack that it is the meeting of worlds. It is the meeting of Victorian England and Madison Square Garden rock show. So we started <laughs> with Victoriana and then we started deconstructing it. So our first costume design was completely literal, absolutely stunning. Our costume designer is an incredible constructor. So he builds beautifully. 
And we started Total Victoriana and then we started stripping away, adding layers, changing textures, getting some legs, getting some pleather, you know, things of that nature. And the same goes for the set, which started a very literal Victorian inspired house. And then we slowly stripped away the wallpaper, the wood, and in its place came scaffolding and lighting elements and rock and roll. And the lighting is some of the most stunning lighting I've ever seen in a piece of theater in my life. And uh, Miranda DeBus did that. And she has a great grasp on this same thing of this sort of naturalistic, haunting, eerie, old Victorian house smash cutting into a rock musical with specials and color and movement. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Well, let's lean into the rock and roll for a minute. What are some of the musical highlights? Jasmine, what's, what are your top picks? Oh, The Soul of the White Bird has become my favorite. And of course, the last two numbers of the show, which are 13 Days in Taunton and Into Your Wildest Dreams. They're the most fun for me because of the storytelling that takes place. And Soul of the White Bird is kind of like, a, I don't know, a rip off the Band-Aid unexpectedly. It starts off very sweet and cuddly and then Lizzie gets very grungy and gritty and grimy, telling the world that she's in right now. Jennifer, what about you? The music is exceptional. And I think that's what really sets this show apart. And I cannot believe the show is not more widely known and widely loved. The composers did an incredible job of honoring the rock genre and many rock genres. So you'll hear different tunes in the show that allude to different musical moments. We have a song called Shatter Cane and Velvet Grass, which is almost like psychedelic 60s rock. Then we have Soul of the White Bird, which is one of my favorites uh, that Jasmine just referenced is absolutely that, that crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely bonkers. And it is like 90s grunge meets like spoken word poetry meets like wailing murder ballad. There's all these different musical allegories throughout the, the show. So every song, I'm not joking, is incredible. And what they play with musically and the ideas they play with are really impressive. But what I think musically is most phenomenal about the show is, you know, we think rock musical and we're going to be like, yeah, that's going to be loud and raucous and da-da-da-da-da. But the harmonies in this show 
will push you back in your seat. And there are a couple moments where the band drops out and it's just acapella, four voices, full voice, almost like gut singing, like throat singing or um, shape note singing style, just full sound bodies and these intense moving counterpoint harmonies that will, will wreck you. And how are the musicians handled within the stage presence? Are they on stage in their own area? Oh, you know it, baby. <laughs> that was one of the first design elements we talked about the set is we did not want this band hiding in a pit or backstage somewhere. They are fr- they are literally front and center. They are center stage. Our drummer is up center on a platform. They're lit and they are costumed for the gods, honey. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Any of the musicians, people that we might know? Oh gosh, we've got an all-star band. So we have uh, Ashley Prince is our music director and she is absolutely crushing the game. So she's heading of the charge. And then we've got B Walton. They are on guitar in a stunning mesh gown with taped nipples. Um, we've got Fuji Fujimoto, Fuji Fujimoto rocking the bass um, with a slash top hat over her Afro. Mm. We've got Daisha Oliver. And this is probably most exciting we've got a cello in a rock musical nice. so we've got Deja oliver crushing it on the cello going from beautiful melodic long legato bow strokes to this creepy eerie cello nightmare sound oh i can hear and it. then we've got jen hodges driving the tempo there with with us on drums so we've got an all-star band would you say that this show is for a certain age and up or Gosh, it, would kids be appropriate? It's such a tough question. One of my good friends texted me. She's like, my 10 year old daughter, can she come? She really wants to come. She's begging me to come. So I'll say this. There are very adult themes in the show. As we discussed in content warning, there is obviously violence, <laughs> violence against parents. There are themes of sexual abuse and there is some cruelty to animals, themes of cruelty to animals. However, it's not shown. It's always sung about. So I think I leave that to the discretion of the parents, have those conversations. If your children like spooky things and you can have those conversations about what to expect, it's a pretty fun show, but content warning noted. And there are some really spooky moments in it. We are doing a horror musical, so I want to leave that for surprise, but there are some very spooky moments in it as well. Director Jennifer Alice Acker and actor Jasmine Renee Ellis. Lizzie is on stage at Actors Express through July 24th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, the writer Tamar Haspel dares us to boldly grow and shares the key to finding joy, adventure, and dinner in your own backyard. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. That famous split infinitive from Star Trek, to boldly go, becomes a clever pun as the title of Tamar Haspel's new book, To Boldly Grow. The author is a James Beard Award-winning columnist for The Washington Post, and creative food writer. She joins us now via Zoom. Tamar Haspel, welcome to City Lights. Lois, I am delighted to be with you. Oh, the pleasure is mine. In your food column for the Washington Post, titled Unearthed, you've written about food from many different perspectives. To Boldly Grow is a memoir that encompasses your work. What did you boldly take on in 2008? Well, in 2008, it didn't seem very bold at all. In fact, I'm basically chicken when it comes to trying new things. But I married a man who is a doer. And when we lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, The thing he wanted to do was put a vegetable garden in whiskey barrels on the roof of our condo building. And that didn't seem like such a big step. So it was easy for me to buy in. I thought, okay, well, this is be interesting. What's the worst case scenario? We don't get any vegetables. I I could be in for this. And then we did it. And I discovered that growing food has this compelling sort of power that the tomatoes that we grew on the garden, you know, and I'm not going to swear it in a court of law, but let's face it, they were the best tomatoes the planet has ever seen. And that gave me momentum when we left Manhattan and we moved to Cape Cod to do all of the rest of the things in the book. What adjustment did it take for you to leave that urban bustle of a the Upper West Side of New York City, to a coastal community. It was an adjustment. In fact, I would call it a lifestyle U-turn. We went from, you know, the Upper West Side where you can walk to the grocery store and just about any place else, and there's excellent public transportation, and the people you run into on the street are all speaking different languages. We went to a place where we bought a tiny house on two acres of woods, And it's not rural, but it's kind of the next best thing. And because I was a food writer, the difference between our Upper West Side lifestyle and our Cape Cod lifestyle manifested itself in all the things that I could do with food. And so when we got here, I looked around and thought, all right, well, what kinds of opportunities does this offer? And the answer was just all kinds of things. And that's That's sort of how we started this whole challenge. It was when we first got here and it was literally 
December 31st. And I said to Kevin, my husband, do you think we can go a whole year and eat one thing every day that we grow or hunt or fish or gather? And okay, you don't know Kevin, but he is- <laughs> I feel like I do after <laughs> this book. What a doll. How lucky are you? I am. He He's- madly supportive of everything I do. He's completely adventurous and can do. And he goes to me, not a chance. I'm like, not a chance. Who who are you? And what have you done with Kevin? <laughs> and so just as he talked me into the rooftop vegetable garden, I talked him into this challenge and we were off to the races. Tamar, Renee Zellweger's famous line from Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello. I love that movie. <laughs> oh, me too. And that line came to mind early in your book when I read in the prologue, <laughs> quote, I've never been much of a doer, a reader, a reader all my life, a writer since age 30, I wanted to know something about everything so long as no actual effort was involved. Give me a book about octopus intelligence and I'll feel no need to scuba drive. Okay, so how did you get to the point where you're not only growing your own produce, but raising chickens, foraging, and even hunting for your own food. Because let me tell you, I'm the reader. I think the short answer to that is gradually. <laughs> and that's kind of the lesson, at least that I took away from this, is that yeah, if you had told me when we lived in Manhattan that within, I guess, six or seven years, I would be hunting deer uh, you know, I I would have laughed you off the Upper West Side. And I think that the key, if you want to make any change in your life or in yourself, is maybe to start small. And so we did start small. That first vegetable garden was that little initial step. But then when we got to Cape Cod and we planted a garden here, I figured, okay, well, if I can plant a garden, maybe I can build a chicken coop. And if I can build a chicken coop, maybe we can raise a flock of turkeys. And if I can raise a flock of turkeys, maybe I can hunt a deer. And all along the way, some of the skills were transferable, but what was really transferable was the confidence. Because every time you do something, it builds you up. It makes you feel stronger and ready to tackle the next thing. And, and so along the way, I discovered the secret to successful self-improvement because I, God knows I try so hard to be a better writer, but it's really hard to improve at something you've been doing for a long time. The way to improve is to try something you've never done before because that first iteration has you learning more than any other subsequent iterations. So you just have to go out and do a whole bunch of things for the first time each. Okay. Your enthusiasm and that Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, let's go put on a show <laughs> tone that comes through in your voice is palpable in the book. And it's so encouraging to the likes of folks like me. 
Would you talk about what you describe as firsthand food? So when we started this, even way back in New York, when I ate those first tomatoes that were Mm. the best ever, and I felt like this food was special because I was invested in it. I had gotten dirty in service of it. I had done heavy lifting. I had tried new things. And then I put this food on the table for my family and my friends. And I felt differently about it than I did about other food. And since then, I've met a lot of people who get food in one way or the other. And some of them are gardeners, some of them are fishermen, some of them are hunters. And I always ask them the same thing. Does that food feel different? And so far, every single one of them has said yes. And no matter if it's a fish or a deer or a mushroom or a tomato, it feels different. Yet there was no name for the category of food that you get with your own two hands, even though they it had this strong common bond. So I had to make one up. <laughs> and so we started calling it first-hand food in our house because that's what was important about it was that you got dirty. And so it's first-hand food is anything that you have rolled up your sleeves and gleaned from the landscape around you and put on the table for dinner. All right. You need a copy right there, (laughs) trademark at least. The book is divided into several parts. Would you describe the structure? Well, it was funny because when I was putting the book together and I was asking myself, okay, well, what's the arc here? What's how how can I take a reader on this journey? The obvious answer is, well, chronological. Start with me in Manhattan and planting a garden, and I'll take you through all the way to, you know, when we we finally built our wood-fired oven so we could serve all of these foods to, to friends and family. But because of the nature of the undertaking, chronological also essentially broke down by enterprise. So first we did gardening, then we did chickens, then we started fishing, then we got turkeys. So so it broke up cleanly into these chapters and I each one is sort of self-contained to talk about doing one thing or the next. And for anybody who's actually interested in doing those things, you know, I, I hope there's a little bit in the book that can help get you started. But also I think they all link together to tell basically a story of of becoming competent. And you you have tips in a slightly gray background, squares, rectangles, on helping readers along those who want to start engaging in the activities you've come to love. That part, I felt like the food writer in you was coming out because I felt like I was getting these personal instructions from a cookbook author. And it it is a little like that. And it's funny because the book, it's sort of the demon spawn between memoir and how-to. And there's no activity in the book that you're going to learn enough about in the book to just go off and do it yourself. But hopefully there's enough information to just get you started. But what I really want the book to do 
for people who are interested in doing these things is build confidence and make you feel like you don't have to be an expert to go out and do this. You can just go out and start, you know, go, go to YouTube, watch some videos, join a local club, and none of this is rocket science. But I think there's also a part of the book that is for people who aren't going to do any of this stuff because it's really about food, but it's also about what doing something new does for you. Lois, do you remember when Marie Kondo's <gasps> book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Yes, you do. Yes, you? and it just, of course, induced guilt immediately all over <laughs> me. I think, oh my <laughs> God, you know, say thank you to all my tchotchkes and set them on fire. No, that's not going to happen. But I admire her. See, so did I. And I got the book and read it, even though I don't have a stuff problem. I got the book because I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And the thing that really captured my attention was that Marie Kondo says that, okay, after her clients do this thing and they get rid of all the stuff in their house and they organize things, they were able to go on and ask for the promotion or get the long overdue divorce or lose those few last pounds or some other personal challenge. Ah. And I said to myself, okay, well, why is that? Is it because your house is clean? <laughs> and eventually the, the light bulb went on and it's no, it's not because your house is clean. It's because you have taken control of a problem that is in your purview to solve. Exactly. Pro that's right. And problem solving makes you strong. So for people who aren't interested in actually going out and building a chicken coop, I think that there's almost more there for you than there is about building the chicken coop because, well, hopefully, I hope people are entertained by the book and just enjoy reading it. But the message is bigger than that. It's that humans thrive on solving new problems. Well, there is a lot that's entertaining too in addition to that self-help. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author and James Beard Award-winning columnist for the Washington Post, Tamar Haspel. There's a whole lot of fun wordplay. Here are just a few examples. <laughs> Shiitakes happen. Chicken out. My two favorites are chapter seven, one fish, two fish, start with bluefish, and the title of chapter 16, Poultry in Motion. Speaking of poultry, Tamar, would you please elaborate on this sentence? Chickens are actually vicious little dinosaurs. And anyone who's ever had chickens knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because a cartoon chicken is this, you know, benign bird clucking around the barnyard, eating insects, scratching up dirt. And they are like that until you bring snacks that they particularly like, and then they will battle each other to the death for them. <laughs> and okay, getting bit by a chicken, it's not a big deal, but it's not pleasant either. But if you're holding something they want, they'll let you know. 
And so, yeah, I, I believe in here, I, I'm wandering into areas that I am not an expert in, but I believe birds are the nearest relatives that we have to dinosaurs. And you certainly see it when you feed the chickens. One of the more serious aspects of your chronicling the experience of life on Cape Cod is when you decided to undertake hunting. Yes. For many of us, taking a gun in hand, killing an animal, it's frightening. And if for some of us, it's unthinkable. How did you overcome that? Again, I think gradually, because I had a lifetime of, you know, being team gazelle when you watch Wild Kingdom. <laughs> I had never wanted to kill an animal, but I've always been a meat eater and I've always tried to be a responsible meat eater. And I think that the single most responsible way to eat meat is to take an overpopulated animal that's doing ecological damage as white-tailed deer are in many parts of the country and put it on the table. And the only reason I didn't want to do it, I thought was that I was a sniveling weenie and I don't want to be a sniveling weenie. The whole nature of this enterprise was to push my limits a little bit. At least that's what it ended up being. Now, it's not how it started. And I decided this was a limit I was going to try and push. And it was very difficult for me. But because it was difficult, it was also extremely gratifying. And to this day, if you ask me about a skill that I'm proud of, and you know, like I said, I try really hard to be good at my craft, but the thing that I'm proudest of is that I can shoot, field dress, and break down a deer. And you know, on the one hand, it sounds ridiculous because 200 years ago, any 10-year-old could say that, but it was hard for me. And doing something that was hard for you and doing it successfully it's what confidence is made of. And you make such a cogent argument for the fact that meat eaters, many of us, don't think about the responsibility, what behooves us when we actually sink our teeth into a delicious hamburger. And in your case, the overpopulation of Year. As I was reading and thinking about your eventual mastering of hunting, I thought of the respect and the regard that actually goes into making use of every part of an animal that because of the supermarket lives most of us lead, we just don't stop to think about. I mean, does a hamburger look like the cow that's taking up so much of the water that we so desperately need? And and does that chicken breast look like a bird? No. It doesn't. And I I think we have probably over the past 100 200 years, gotten progressively farther away from the source of our food. And in lots of ways, I think that's a good thing. That's what modernity has built. And it has freed up 
people to be, you know, dentists and radio hosts and writers. <laughs> and none of us could do our jobs if we still had to provide for ourselves by, you know, the kind of subsistence agriculture that sustained humanity for thousands of years. I'm in favor of a modern food system but it has its downsides. And I think the fact that we have gotten so removed from the source of our food and, and our inner pendulum has sort of shifted away from plants and animals and toward boxes and bags, and that has been to our detriment. And I think that one of the advantages of going out and getting your own food, and it doesn't have to be hunting, it can be a hydroponic herb garden on the windowsill. I think it, it can move our pendulum back because plants and animals are the foods that humans thrive on. And we've lost track of that for, I think, in some ways, exactly what you mentioned, that we're creatures of the supermarket and the things we buy either come wrapped in plastic in a little styrofoam tray and don't look like they're animals of origin or you know, in the center aisles, they come in the boxes and bags with the bright colors and the exciting punctuation. And food originates as plants and animals. And I think there's a benefit to spending time with those plants and animals. Absolutely. Tamar, part of the fun of your book is being in on your life with your husband, Kevin Flaherty. You write lovingly about Kevin's wedding gift to you. Would you share that story? It's kind of embarrassing, but I guess if I didn't want to tell the story, I shouldn't have put it in the book. <laughs> so we got married, I think, about three. Actually, I can tell you exactly when we got married. We got married three years to the date of our first date because we figured that way we'd only have one date to remember. And we usually forget anyway. We're not good <laughs> about things like that. And for our honeymoon, we went to Arizona for a few days, actually to golf school. We do play golf. And when we came back and we walked in to the apartment that we had been living together in on, on West End Avenue and 71st, there was this beautiful Viking stove installed where my old crap stove had been. It had wrapping <laughs> paper and a giant bow on it. Kevin had gone all over New York oh. to find the one high quality stove that fit in that 19 inch space because it wasn't a standard size. He'd gotten our super to install it while we were gone. He got the paper and the bow and he never let on a word of it. And it was the most wonderful wedding gift. And I got him nothing. It didn't even occur to me that one's own wedding was a gift giving occasion. And so not only did Kevin get me this wonderful wedding present, he didn't resent it that I got him nothing at all. And, you know, I knew he was a keeper before then, but that was just another data point. Author and James Beard award-winning columnist for the Washington Post. More information about her new book, To Boldly Grow, is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. Today, featuring multimedia artist Emily Yamazales. 
amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Emily Yamasalis, and I'm a multimedia artist, primarily working within ceramic sculpture, photography, and writing. My ceramic works rely on transparent glazes to suspend underlying surface decoration in order to evoke a transient moment just below the surface. Metallic glazes, scales, and bubbling surface marks offer a tactile experience with both the sculptural and functional ceramics that I make. I maintain a regular photographic practice in which I often shoot detailed textured terrain for inspiration as a visual sketchbook and for making rudimentary holograms from layered transparent images. Through this latter process, I am exploring a simultaneous collapse of images, building up a holographic 3D space or an almost moving image as a viewer walks past the work. In my new and developing body of work, I am expanding a collection of wing-shaped ceramic wall sculptures, orchid-like vases, mutated plant-like sculptures, and transparent screen prints of textural photographs on fluorescent plexiglass. My art practice certainly goes back to childhood when I had a 3D drawing of an astronaut selected for display in the Atlanta airport one summer. I was eight then, and recently I found one of those fill-in-the-blank about me posters from the fifth grade. I said I wanted to either be an astronaut or an artist when I grew up, and this is still true. I attended the University of Georgia's Lamar Dodd School of Art and majored in interdisciplinary studio art because I loved photo and video. This degree also allowed me to take any out of the ordinary classes like performance art, sound art, and 3D animation. My writing and creative practice are most influenced by science fiction, ontological philosophy, and speculative thinking towards future world building. My current body of work interrogates contemporary climate-based sci-fi narratives and is in conversation with Swedish poet and critic Osberg's epic poem, Dark Matter. In this poem, Berg's prose evokes a post-human world of horrific strangeness and renewal. Additionally, I'm deeply dedicated to documenting Arabia Mountain, a granite outcrop in Connors, Georgia, with its moon-like, otherworldly atmosphere when captured on film. A lot of my motivation comes from wanting to create something wholly strange and new, like a set piece for a science fiction film, and to have people glimpse into a portal of wonder. I have lived in and around Atlanta my whole life and have a deep love for the South and Atlanta's landscape and culture. I have been able to cultivate a community of like-minded artists, mentors, and friends after moving to Atlanta post-college. My job at Burnaway, a nonprofit magazine of art and criticism, has strengthened my connections with the art scene and allowed me to grow as a critic as well. I most enjoy seeing art in DIY spaces like the End Project space near East Point, as well as smaller commercial spaces like Take It Easy on Edgewood. 
I also enjoy the programming at Swan Coach House Gallery, as well as the yearly Working Artist Project exhibitions at Mocha GA. My work can be seen online via my website, emilyyamasalas.com. Several of my ceramics can be seen in person this summer at Swan Coach House's Summer Invitational Show. And later this fall, a piece of mine will be on view at Mocha GA for the Working Artist Project Apprentice Show. Multimedia artist Emily Yamasalas and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Yamasalas and her work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the High Museum of Art's current exhibition, Bob Thompson, This House is Mine. Plus, West Side Story is on stage at City Springs Theater, and we'll talk with creatives behind the production. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash city lights there you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to city lights on your own schedule city lights senior producer is kim droves summer evans is our producer and our engineer is shelly canavy I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.